Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33, a wonderful passage. As I knew I'd have the opportunity to share the word of God with you, I thought, well, what passage would I like to communicate to God's people? And this resonated with me. It's not something that perhaps you may be as familiar with. You may know the the beginning of the narrative and the end, but the particulars of it, perhaps not so. It is a wonderful passage to meditate on, to even have a sense of of wonder of God's grace. And this evening, I want to present this text to you because it will, I believe, direct the heart and the mind to have a greater understanding of God and in particular, God's grace. Manasseh, a horrible leader, sinner, a Manasseh sin like it tells us in scripture, like no other king of Judah. A Manasseh, and because of his sin and how he led the people of God astray, they would eventually be taken away into Babylon because of his wretchedness, his evil, his misleading. But yet in the story, uh, if you do not read the account in Second Chronicles, And if you're simply reading from the account of Kings, you see that Manasseh shed much innocent blood and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and he died. But there's more to the story. God is telling us that there is something you must understand that despite one's sinfulness, despite a person having a heart that is against the will of God, even a recalcitrant heart, that God is a God of grace. And I would say to you all here this evening, aren't you glad that God is a gracious God? Amen. Aren't you glad that God is a merciful God and a patient God and a God of long suffering? And we see this in the light of Manasseh. This is a message I believe that will also rebuke and condemn choices that perhaps you've made to withhold grace and forgiveness from others. It's a message that I'm hoping will exhort you to appreciate the grace of God in your life and will motivate you to get rid of these lingering effects of sin and the temptations of the world. This is a message about influence. What do I mean by that? A message about influence. You will note that even when one turns from the ways of the world, those that have observed it, that poor example, may not turn with you. Said differently, bad examples have a lasting effect. And at times that effect is more than we would think and surely more than we would hope. And this is a message that in another setting confirms the faithfulness of God. He is a covenant-keeping God and he will keep his promises. Yahweh, we see in this passage, responds to humility and sincere prayer and contrite hearts. I'm preaching for those who may resist repentance because the flesh and the, and the enemy of your very soul has convinced you that you've gone too far, that you can't be restored, that you cannot be forgiven. But not true when you consider Second Chronicles 33. Not true when you walk your way through this narrative and you realize that our great and glorious God is also God that would forgive. And if we would just humble ourselves before him, he is readily there for us. 
this is also a message, if you will, for parents and, and grandparents whose children and grandchildren have gone the way of Manasseh. And you're wondering, can they ever return? Have they gone too far? You hear my voice, and, and I want you to know that there is hope. There is hope for that disobedient spouse who has been dragged into a dark world of lust and sin. Friends, this passage corrects, I believe, immature believers and and misguided critics and even errant theologians who espouse some dichotomy between the God of the old and the God of the new. One is capricious and ready to hate and ready to take out revenge. Uh, He has to be manipulated if to forgive. And the other is somehow in the New Testament is a God that is gracious and patient and kind and willing to save all. They would have us believe, these errant theologians, these misguided critics would have us believe that somehow God has gone through some intertestamental change and he has reincarnated himself in the New Testament as a more loving God. But when you think that way, you've sorely misunderstood the scriptures. You have not basked in God's greatness and his glory and his grace, even in the Old Testament. Now, of course, a position like that is something that we would adamantly reject. We reject that ignorant and, and even unbiblical misrepresentation of our Savior. You will see from this passage an amazing grace that is the same throughout Scripture because our God is an unchanging God. He is a perfect God, and perfection does not develop. God always has been and always will be at the zenith of his character. There is no development with him. So to say that somehow in the Old Testament, God is different, and in the New Testament, now there is a kinder and more patient God is a sore, sore error. God is a wonderful God throughout, amen? (laughs) He is a forgiving God. And even as we heard these seven testimonies, and they are just that, they are speaking to the fact that I was lost, but then I was found. I was religious, I resisted, I was in the ways of the world, but the Lord sought me out, and he would, by his own divine power and by his own will, would do what called me to himself and bestow on me this saving grace. Now, understanding the context of this passage will help us meet some of these expectations that I put before us. And just briefly, before we get into the text proper, Kings, Chronicles, Chronicles, um, as the chronicler is giving us an account of the Lion of David. But as he gives us the account of the Lion of David, it is not just that he is giving us narratives and a history. He is also helping us understand theology as he goes about. And in this passage, we'll understand better the theology of repentance and God's grace and how God is still this covenant-keeping God. And even when a person can commit some of the most heinous sins that God is willing and surely he is able to forgive. And we see here in this line of David is what we see in the book of Chronicles and how God, despite the unfaithfulness even of that line will keep his promises to his people. And if they would but 
humble themselves, and if they would call out, God will in fact be their protector. He will be their shield. He will be their everything for them. Now, when we think about Manasseh, where does he come in in the history? There is Asa, and there is Hezekiah, that great um, king of Judah. And you remember Hezekiah as he stands against the leaders of Assyria, the Shennacherib is coming into the land and he is wiping out city after city after city. And then he comes to Jerusalem. And what does Hezekiah do? A shortened version of really Isaiah 36 to 39 tells us that there is a letter that is written by Shennacherib. And essentially he says to Hezekiah, why are you misleading these people? Have, Have any of the other gods of the land been able to defeat me? No, they have not. And he gives an account of the cities that have been defeated and the gods have been defeated. And what does Hezekiah do? He takes that letter and he goes into the house of the Lord and he spreads it out and he prays to the living God. And then a word comes to him that in fact, God will defend this city. And on what basis will will he do it? It is always and forever for his name. But he also says, based on his promise to David, to David. I'm a faithful God. And we know the rest of that story, perhaps. And if you don't, what happens? The people of God are are held up in Jerusalem. And God sends an angel. And what does that angel do? He kills 185,000 Assyrians. And then Shennacherib, in his disgrace, goes back to his own land. And the irony even of that account is this. Here is Hezekiah who goes to the temple of the Lord and he he spreads the letter before the Lord and he prays and there is victory. Shennacherib goes back to his temple and he is there praying and two of his sons come in and they kill him. Why? Because he is following a false god, Hezekiah, the great and awesome Yahweh. But there is also something happens in that episode in 36 to 39. Hezekiah gets news that he's going to die. And what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. And the Lord says, I have heard your prayers and I have seen your tears. I have added 15 years to your life. And in those 15 years, who comes? Manasseh. But the line must continue because Hezekiah has no heir. It continues. Now look at um, 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33, and notice the first verse. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Age 12, his reign goes from 696 to 642, um, there is a question about how can it be 55 years because of Josiah's reign. We know the date for that. And most take the position that he was a co-regent. So that is, he was ruling for about 10 years along with his father, Hezekiah. So it just gives us a basic introduction, which is normal for the chronicler. Here is the king. Uh, this is when he reigned. This is how long he reigned. And what's interesting about this, um, the mindset would have been if someone has reigned a long period of time, that is a sign of a blessing and perhaps a sign of even godliness, but not so in the case of Manasseh. But it is indeed a sign of God's grace in his life. 
I want to show you in this passage five movements, five movements where we can see God's grace, excuse me, and the importance of repentance and see the faithfulness of God. Five movements, and I'll give you five words. They were centered around these five words. Number one is revolting, revolting. Number two is rebuke. Number three is repentance. Number four is reformation. And number five is record. So revolting, rebuke, repentance, reformation, and record. And if we follow the verbal ideas throughout this passage, it helps us understand what is occurring. I won't read all of it. Initially, I thought that I might, but I'm going to read section by section as we go through it. Number one is this, this first movement, amazing grace and the revolting reign of Manasseh, verses two through nine, and I'll read that. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh disposed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and Asherim and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of Yahweh. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanan. And he practiced witchcraft and divination. He practiced sorcery and dealt with medians and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again remove from the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Verse 9, thus Manasseh, what did he do? Misled Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And that section fits together well because I want you to notice something. Notice verse 2. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. And then in verse 9, he caused them to do more evil than the nations. Notice also in verse 2, it says, The Lord had disposed or dispossessed the sons of Israel. The nations that are dispossessed. But then notice verse 9 whom the Lord had destroyed. And this gives us, if you will, the bookends to this passage. Now, when one thinks of Manasseh, uh, the immediate thoughts are unrighteous, the worst of sinners and leaders. I mean, and rightfully so, in view of the testimony of the evil that he has committed before the Lord and his people. He's committed sins against the Lord, who should have been the object of his affection and his service. He has committed sins against the people, these people whom he should have led. He should have set an example for them of genuine 
worship, but instead what happens, he has misled them is what verse 9 tells us. And he has not only misled the people, but also Yahweh has been replaced with these impotent and debauched gods of the land. Isaiah comments on some of these gods as the people of God are now. They've been taken away into into exile by the Babylonians. And in Isaiah 40 to 48, you see Isaiah commenting on these gods. And what does he say about them? Just a sampling. He says they are nothing. They are less than nothing. They cannot hear. They cannot smell. Do they know the future? They do not. And he speaks at times with this sarcasm. It says, if you know the end, please then tell me. Recount all of these things in order as the people of God are now involved in worshiping the stars. He says, I am the one that has created all of these things and I count them and I know them all by name. And you would worship them? I'm the one that has created all of them. I am the maker of heavens and the earth. Why would you indeed choose a God that you've created from wood? <laughs> and you go out and you carve a God and you say, you are my God, I bow down to you. And what is left of it, you cook a meal. It is utterly, utterly spiritually ridiculous. But yet Manasseh has brought in these gods into the people, before the people. He sinned like no other. Second Kings 21 says he sh- shed very much innocent blood. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, when you envision Manasseh, you, you would envision someone that's obviously evil. The scripture says this. He is self-important. He is inconsiderate. He is a lustful man whose conscience has been sorely damaged because of constantly violating God's law. But then, and that's what's so beautiful, but then there is an invasion of grace in his life. And in turn, what happens? The life of Israel. God's patience had reached the point. Judgment has come, but we will see even later in this passage that that judgment actually was an avenue of grace. In Deuteronomy, we don't have time to go there, but if you were to note Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 13, where God is denouncing all of the debauchery of the land, and he's saying this is something that you must avoid. Don't allow it to pollute you. And what has Manasseh done? He has brought in the pollutants, and even to the point where he brings it into the house of the Lord. How does he sin? According to the nations. What does that mean? Now, justice demands that they be punished because God did what? The people of God come into the land and he says, you must dispossess them of the land because of their debauchery. And now Manasseh has come to the point where he is outdoing the nations. So there must be punishment here. And it says in 2 Kings 21.11 that Manasseh sinned even more than the Amorites. And what a statement that is. He built up the high places. And when it talks about the high places, these are places of worship that at times would have been used to worship false gods. But it was still incorrect as we'll see later on in the passage, even when the people offered up sacrifices to Yahweh, it was still incorrect because it had decentralized worship. Worship and those offerings were to happen in Jerusalem and nowhere else. Not in the high places at all. 
And not only that, there is the ball in the ashram. And interesting enough, in the Chronicle, he actually uses a plural. And perhaps um, to emphasize uh, the, the height and the depth of his debauchery. He is involved in astral worship. All the stars are being worshipped. Now, some of you, uh, before you knew the Lord, you may have been involved in that and you didn't even know it. Uh, I remember, I can't believe it, the Lord is so gracious to save us, isn't he? Let me just say that right now. I remember talking about, in high school, people would talk about, what sign are you? Now, some of you know you did that at some point in time. What sign are you? So those of you who don't know, supposedly born during a different time of the year, that says you're a certain sign. So you're Sagittarius or Pisces or Capricorn. And I know people to this day that will still say, you know, well, I'm a Capricorn. That's how we are. I was a Pisces. I'm not even going to tell you what I was supposed to be. <laughs> Sagittarius. And that was one, what we thought was an innocent way of involving ourselves and in understanding the stars. Not at all. He has taken it to the nth degree. The stars are now worship. And this is why, turn with me, uh, I can't resist it, turn with me to uh, Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah makes a statement of his greatness Verse 21, do you not know, have you not heard, Isaiah 40, has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out all the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing and makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have you been planted and have been sown and the root has taken forth. And notice what he says then in verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One. And why does God, uh, particularly in Isaiah 40 to 48, keep repeating that? To whom will you liken me? To whom will you liken me? Because he's saying, how dare you compare me to these gods? How dare you think that I'm like Baal? How dare you think that I'm like Asherim? How dare you think that I'm like Ra? How dare you think that I'm like Mola? I am not. And notice what he says in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now, we can't uh, appreciate it as much um, as others because we live in the city area and there's light pollution. I just got back this afternoon, anchored. We had our family retreat. We're in the high desert, the 15, you know, past Barstow. And then once you get off, uh, what is it, uh, the exit, I think it's Cherokee Road that you, you exit there. And then you have to drive several miles even away from the 15. And then you can look up at night and you can see what? Oh, the stars. You're looking into the heavens. You've seen the brilliance of it all. And even last night, they took us on this big 
hayride as we even got away from the camp lights. And I said, can we just stop here for a moment? And we stopped and we looked into the heavens and you saw the glory of God. And you're saying to yourself, even in that moment, the creator of all beings, the one who gives life, the one who is majestic and glorious and kind and patient in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament is the one who created all these things and not one of them is missing. Therefore, if we consider just the vastness of the universe itself, not one is missing. I know everyone. And there are several times you can look into the heaven and you saw a shooting star and even he knows that. How much more? How much more? How much more is aware of you? This God. They're not to be worshipped, these stars. We're to worship the one who creates them. And, and he created them with absolutely no effort. It was simply spoken and they were. So he defiled the house of God. He brings in, go back with me to Second Chronicles 33. The house of God is defiled. Why? Because he brings in these objects of worship inside God's house. And it was only supposed to be a place for his name. My name, who I am, my person is what is being communicated here. He had misled them. And now they're also involved in child sacrifice. And I've been to this area in Molak, a, a horrible deity. This bull that is he sitting and his belly is open. And it would be a furnace that we'd be burning and literally children will be thrown into the belly of Molak. And now what has happened here. And that is one reason that God says you must dispossess the people from the land. Verse 2. This is one reason you're supposed to destroy the people from the land. Because they're committing these hideous things. And now Manasseh you're bringing it here. How can it be? And this is why I said our first movement. I said revolting reign of Manasseh. Now, when we think about that word revolting, I don't mean like revolt as in rebellion. I mean revolt in this sense. Um, Horrendous, awful, disgusting, repulsive, nauseating. Because we often use the word that way. Oh, that's revolting. The smell of it is revolting. Those actions are revolting. Some of the things that we've seen come from the Middle East and the hardness and the evil of a man's heart that you would take the lives of innocent people, that you would behead a child, that you would burn them, revolting. But Manasseh, it's a revolting time in his life, in the life of Judah. Occultism, mediums, spirits, witchcraft. And you say, well, what's the point of this message? I thought it was uh, God's grace. Well, it is. And that's the beauty of God's grace when we consider it with the backdrop of what is evil and what is wrong and what is dark. Then we appreciate grace all the more. And this is why it's so important that our theology is correct and we have a proper understanding of sin and man and who he is and what man, what man is not. Then we can appreciate grace all the more. It was revolting. The second movement 
amazing grace in the rebuke of Manasseh, verses 9 and, I'm sorry, verses 10 and 11. Notice what it says. Then Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, Yahweh brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against him, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with iron chains, and took him into Babylon. So there is a rebuke. And this is an act of grace. The scripture tells us clearly that actually we are, if we're to be a mature body at times, it is necessary that we even rebuke one another. And here rebuke is an act of kindness. God has spoken to the people through the prophets. They ignored it. Therefore, judgment comes. And what happens? The Assyrians were going to take Manasseh away in a most humiliating manner. Why? Because he had led the people astray. He led them astray. If you look at Second um, Kings, not Second Kings, Second Chronicles 36, Jehoiakim was led away by a hook that is in his nostrils and shackles on his feet. And the same thing happens here for Manasseh. Because if you notice verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now, before that happens, what has occurred? What is that distress? Verse 11 They captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. Humiliating. Now, there's some people that, there are issues about dating here. There's no record of him being taken away um, to Assyria. When would this have occurred? A short version is this. Uh, After Ashurhaddon, the king of Assyria dies. He divides his kingdom between two sons. And one son is essentially the governor of Babylon. One is going to have his, um, going to be stationed in Nineveh. And there would have been other vassal states. In a vassal state, the easiest way to think about it is to think about NATO. So in NATO right now, I, well, I was about to make an entirely too political statement, so I won't. Um, So NATO has a sense in which if you harm us, we will fight for you. That's the essence of it. That's the essence of it. And so these vassal states would have been, uh, the Assyrians are saying, yes, we have subdued you. And one tribute you have to pay to us is not just monies, but also allegiance. So if anyone comes against us, you are a barrier to us. Now, one barrier would have been the Egyptians wanting to fight against the Syrians. And so obviously, here is Israel, here is Egypt there. They would have been, in one sense, a buffer there. Now, most would take the position that what happened with the Assyrians in Manasseh is this. Manasseh sides with one brother who is the governor of Babylon against the other brother. But guess who lost? the brother who was the governor of Babylon. So the other brother comes in to take Manasseh away to say, don't ever do that. Wrong side. He punishes him and he takes him to Babylon instead of Nineveh to make a statement to the brother who has now been killed. This is what happens when you fight against us. So for a period of time, and then he's released again. But that was God's grace in his life. How can that be God's grace? Well, it's evident even from the scripture itself, from itself. Would you agree with this? Excuse me. Would you agree with this? 
God often uses humiliation to bring us to humility. I mean, history is full of rich stories of men and women whose pride was broken by the humbling hand of God. I'm convinced that many of you are part of that history. You're listening to me now, and you're part of that history. God used something in your life, circumstances, to break you. And when God breaks us, then he can pour life into us. This is an amazing and providential act of God's grace. Sadly, history is also includes people who harden their hearts instead of allowing God to break them, break them of this inclination for human self-sufficiency. A person will either be a Pharaoh or they will be a John Newton. Grace resisted leads to destruction, but grace received opens the floodgates of mercy. Um, Jeremiah 15, 3 and 4, that says that the judgment is going to come because of Manasseh. The same thing is said in chapter 16, verses 10 to 13. But God, in this episode, humbled Manasseh and his heart was broken. That's not always the case. John Calvin said this. He says, God subdued my heart to docility, which had become hardened against the truth of the gospel. Now, we heard seven testimonies and there are different degrees in which those hearts were hardened. I can speak to my own heart, a person that thought that I knew the gospel, thought that I knew the Lord Jesus Christ, but in fact, I did not. And I still will never forget the moment when God was opening my eyes, if you will. I was, I was gaining a greater understanding of the gospel and what it meant. And there was a period of time because I grew up around the church, and I would say, if someone had asked me, oh, what is the gospel? I could give them the gospel. What is hell? I could tell them there is a hell. What is heaven? I could tell them there is a heaven. But it was not realized in my life. And I'll never forget that episode in the university dorm room where I realized I'm headed to hell. 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 But did I change that mo- very moment? No, I did not. Oh. So I stand here <laughs> amazed. Because in that moment I said, yes, I know it. Listen to these words, frightening words. But I'm not ready to change. Wow. So I'm thankful for the grace of God. Are you not? (laughs) I'm thankful that he was patient and kind and merciful. Here's Manasseh revolting. But yet God does what? God breaks him. And he can bring him to repentance. The third movement is this. Amazing grace in the repentance of Manasseh. Notice verses 12 and 13. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. 12 and 13 is amazing grace in his repentance. Manasseh is now broken by grace. And it becomes evident when you follow this sort of verbal line throughout 
there was distress and then he entreated and then he humbled himself and then he prayed and it says that he knew and then he built and he removed and then he set and then he ordered. That takes us all the way to verse 16. But the first thing that took place was this distress is taken away. You know, history again is full of moments of, and can it be moments? Is it possible that I have gained an interest in the Savior's love? Is this possible? Throughout Genesis, the revelation, we see how God calls sinners to himself. Genesis, Adam and Eve, the original sinners, but yet there's grace. Abraham, the the truth twister, but yet there's grace. Aaron, the compromiser, but yet there's grace. Here is David, the murderer and the adulterer, but yet there is grace. Israel, the nation, the covenant violator, but time and time again, there is grace. The thief on the cross, a blasphemer, but yet he goes from a blasphemer to now one that can say what? Remember me when you come into your what? And what did Jesus Christ say? Today you should be with me where? In paradise. There is Saul, the persecutor, but then there is grace. How is it possible? It is only possible by the grace of God. There is Augustine, the the arrogant sinner, but yet by God's grace, his eyes are open and we still read him today. There is Martin Luther, the deceived priest, but yet grace invades his life and now even recently, I was at, did a Reformation tour in, we were in Scotland, in England, and you're seeing the influence of the Reformers, and much of it starting with a Luther, but yet, without grace, there is no Reformation as we know it. William Perkins, the father of Puritanism, he was a drunkard, and there is grace. John Newton, that vile slave captain, but what happened? There is grace. Amen for grace? For grace. I mean, without naming all of them, biblical history is laced with some of the godliest people in the world. But it also has these people, liars and cheaters and swindlers and adulterers and murderers and compromisers and deniers and persecutors and the religiously lost. And it is by God's grace that he calls us. Finish this lyrical line with me. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater, what? Than all my sin. All my sin. More can be said, but notice verse 12. Go back to verse 12. What does it say here? He was in distress. God breaks him. He entreated Yahweh his God. So important. The Nazbi, he was moved. It says God was going to be moved by his entreaty. Um, The LSB says, he entreated Yahweh his God. The Net Bible says um, he asked God for mercy. The Holman Bible says he sought the favor of Yahweh his God. But what is interesting about this in the original language, it, it's very picturesque and it's very intimate. And actually when it says that he entreated the Lord, it, it, it literally is this. He softened the face of God. That is the literal translation of it. And this is perhaps why uh, Young's literal translation 98 says, and he appeased the face of Yahweh, or he appeased the face of Jehovah. Soften the face of God. Why would he soften the face of God? 
Because God is angry at his people. God is angry at Manasseh. And what happens when you're faced when you're angry? Is it pleasant? No. And some, with a different complexion, you get angry. And what happens? Your face is turning what color? Red. You see it in their face. That child that's done something wrong and all of a sudden they turn around and the parent has a certain face. And now what is that child going to do? Uh-oh. I had a couple uh-oh moments as a kid. <laughs> and especially with my dad because, you know, my dad was, I get my shoulders from my dad. So can you imagine that? Boy. And all of a sudden it's time to, you know, give that little puppy look. You know, dad, I, it's okay, isn't it? I'm sorry, Dad. I really, I really won't do it again. Please, I'll mow the lawn. <laughs> then the face changes a bit. So he says here, beautifully stated, and he softened the face of Yahweh Elohim. He softened his face. And when he softened his face, he now brings him back. This is grace. We should be thankful for this grace. Notice as well, humility. Go back to the text. What does it say? He entreated the Lord his God. He softened his face and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Humility is so important in Scripture. And we see now here even another reason for the chronicler as he is saying God is a God who responds to humility. He will, in one sense, Manasseh, let me communicate this to you. I think it is so important. Manasseh is representing, he's sort of a microcosm, if you will. He's a paradigm for what is going to happen in the future. The people of God will be taken away. They will be taken away by the Babylonians. They will be in exile. They would not learn from their northern brothers. 150 years, you would think, wait a minute, our brothers have been taken away. We should learn our lesson from them. But no, they thought that they were righteous people and they were not. And this is why Jeremiah would say to them, no, the Babylonians are indeed coming. And this is why they wanted to hush the mouth of Jeremiah. And Babylonians, the Babylonians did come and they were taken away because of their sin. But God is saying, if you will be in one sense like a Manasseh and humble yourself, I will bring you back. And he did. You were led away by Manasseh, but yet if you would pray to me and call out to me, I will answer you. And what we see here is a living out of what Solomon said in 2 Chronicles 6. And if you were to read through it, you would see what Solomon is saying. If my people will call out to you when you are in distress, if you would call out when those that are fighting against you and you would call out, you will hear from the Lord. Humility is important. Here's another wretched king, Ahab. You remember Ahab and Jezebel? But some may miss this point. In 1 Kings 21, you can note 20 to 29, but in 25 to 29, Ahab does what? When he hears what is going to come upon him and upon his household, what happens? Ahab humbles himself. And what does God say about that? He says, look how he has humbled himself. 
so I will not bring all of this wrath upon him in his time. Rehoboam and the princes of Israel. Here is um, Shishak, the, the Egyptians that is coming against them, and they have committed great evil, but what do they do? They humble themselves. In 2 Chronicles 12, verse 7, they humble themselves, and it says that God notices that they have humbled themselves, and he says, I will grant some measure of deliverance, and my wrath will not be fully poured out on them because of humility. Ahaz rejected it. Second Chronicles 28, Ahaz had the opportunity, but he says he became even more unfaithful to the Lord. Ammon and Second Chronicles 33, he lacked it because it says of Ammon, he did not humble himself like his father Manasseh. See, God is a God that is great and glorious, and we know that and we understand it. Say, for instance, Isaiah 57, 15, a beautiful verse. Why don't you turn there? Because I want your eyes to see it. Notice what Isaiah says of God and his relationships to those that are humble and those that are contrite. And Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is Holy, And we've seen the importance of his name in 2 Chronicles 33. God says, my name shall be there forever, but you have defiled my name. So we see God, he lives in a high and holy place. He dwells in eternity. This is what we see in the first part of Isaiah 57, 15. But here's the beauty of God's transcendence but also now meeting with God in his eminence, that is, he will be with certain people. And he says, yes, I'm a God that dwells in this way, but notice what he says, but also with the lowly of spirit and the contrite of heart. Also. We should all be so thankful for that also, because without that, we are all undone. Go back to, Second Chronicles 33, and notice, if you will, he prayed. Verse 13, God was moved, he brought him again. Notice this contrast. Look at verse 10. God spoke, they paid no attention. Manasseh prayed, God heard. This same hand. Notice verse 11. The Lord brought the commanders to do what? Take him away. But also that same hand, verse 13, brought him again to his kingdom. What's the point here? Here is just the sovereign expression of God's grace. It is a statement that is simply saying this. I will show mercy to whom I have will show mercy. And I will show it when I please in the manner in which I please. And for those of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be thankful for the sovereign expression of God's grace in your life. There was some point in time where he says, enough is enough, I will open your eyes. And that same hand that brought judgment on Manasseh is the same hand that brought him back. And the people of God did not hear him, but yet God heard Manasseh. This is where God's sovereignty, his absolute sovereignty, overcomes absolute and total inability of man. Because we cannot come to Christ on our own. Do we all agree with that? Absolutely, we must. Number four. Quickly, I'll give you the last two. 
amazing grace in the reformation of Manasseh. Verses 14 to 17. I just want to follow the main ideas. Notice what he did. He built the outer wall. He encircled the Ophel. He put army commanders in place. He removed the foreign gods. He threw them outside of the city, verse 15. He set up the altar of Yahweh. He sacrificed peace offerings. He ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Reform takes place. And this is an application, really, of Second Chronicles 7.14. And if my people who are called by my name will do what? If they will humble themselves and pray, then God will do what? Heal the land. And this is what is happening here. Second Chronicles 7.14 is being applied. The land is being healed. So he removes and he throws out the idols. He sets up what should be proper worship. And he orders the people to serve God. The fifth movement is this. Amazing grace in the record of Manasseh. In the record of Manasseh. Verses 18 to 20. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayers to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayers and how he entreated God and his unfaithfulness, these things are recorded before he humbled himself. Then in verse 20, So Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in his own house. The record of Manasseh, sleep. And what's beautiful about verse 20, he slept. But he does not sleep in the atrocities of his life before he discovered, discovered the knowledge of God. He sleeps with peace. Why? Because God is a forgiving God. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. None of the gods of the land are like our God. We should not be alarmed that Manasseh was forgiven. Because this is consistent with the nature of our Savior. It's a statement of his sufficient grace. It's a statement of his sufficient person that he forgives. I close with this image. I've mentioned being on the Reformation tour uh, recently in Scotland and England, and uh, many things stand out, but brothers and sisters who've gone before us and gave their lives, whether it be a a Patrick Hamilton who right there on the shores at St. Andrews was burned alive at only 24 years of age. You know, it it took six hours for it to take place, six hours. Visiting the Covenanters prison, which some would say it was sort of like a concentration camp where they kept them. Going to the burial spot of a John Knox, and and right now it's just in a parking lot, and it's parking lot space 23, and seeing this man who lived for the Lord. Walking, we were visiting, and we went to Pembroke College. Um, Cambridge and walking around and seeing the place where Nicholas Ridley, he would actually study uh, his Greek and he would pace back and forth as he's memorizing the Greek, Paul's letters in the Greek text, not just memorizing, but in the Greek text. But yet 
died as well. Amazing grace. The day we were leaving, um, you may have seen that there were a huge protest in London, 100,000 people. We had to leave early on Saturday the 28th because we thought we couldn't even get to the airport. So the rally was beginning that was pro-Palestine slash pro-Hamas Marxists. And I say that because of interacting with people, not just something that, you know, someone put out on a tweet or a, a Facebook post. So we're getting ready to leave, and I go to one table, and I speak to the person who's there, and I ask them a question. I say, well, help me understand what's happening here. I say, what is your position on Hamas? And the first words not, didn't really give it much thought. They said, well, it was totally justified. I said, really? I said, so you're telling me that the killing of, of elderly women, um, innocent people, uh, that's justified? Yes. And I said, babies, you know, burned and babies beheaded. And the person's response was this. It was a dark moment, a dark moment. Their response was, we haven't verified whether or not they were beheaded. Is that dark? I recognize that they were killed. Some even burned alive, but we don't know that they were actually beheaded. As if that now changes my perspective on things. And I thought, and I prayed to God that I'll keep that person's face in my mind for some years and maybe for the rest of my life because I need to pray for their soul. So, okay, Hargrove, where is this going? Here's the beauty of our Savior. If that young person, through the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God breaks them, pours life into them, they could be right here with you singing praises to the living God. Amen? That's our God. Nothing is beyond him. Nothing. Manasseh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He softened the face of God and he knew Yahweh. Amen. Father, we thank you for these words you give us, your goodness, grace, and mercy. Help us to apply them. In Christ's name, amen.